Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, you've survived. What a beautiful lunch. What a great morning. To, you guys know how to feed yourselves. That's all I can say. Uh, we've, we've had a lovely time uh, eating. So it's really good. We're allowed to eat as much as we like while we're away from home. Strict diet at home, but you can really eat well out. So we did. We have. Uh, we turn now to the subject of what's heaven like. So let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you would grant us such an insight into your word that our lives and hearts may be filled with that righteous hope, the hope through which we depend upon the Lord Jesus, but our great hope that fills our lives with meaning and purpose and great joy and, yes, even comfort in our grief. And we pray these things, Heavenly Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Christine's parents uh, had died. Uh, my mother died in the 1960s. Uh, my father died in the 1990s in our home. He'd been living there and he, he died. Uh, we weren't home, but the children were there. Imagine. We little imagined this was, I suppose, normal. We could understand that. But we little imagined that within two or three years, our first grandchild... Uh, would die at birth. We knew he would, we'd been told. My daughter never considered any other possibility than carrying him to term. She said to me, Dad, we will, uh, we will give him the best life he can get. And I used to sing to him and uh, think of him and pray for him. And then he was born and we all, he died shortly thereafter and we all gathered and held him in our arms uh, and we took him to the church, and because Bethy had been obedient to the word of God and Chris, her husband, uh, we were able to give him a, a funeral, which was a wonderful, wonderful occasion. I'll never forget Beth standing up and reading the scriptures. And then we uh, took him to the cemetery and we laid him to rest, and we sang over his grave, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And uh, Jonathan, for that was his name, has never left us. Uh, we always think of him. We go to the uh, cemetery annually and uh, people gather and so on. And there are pictures of him. I have a picture of him in my study. We never imagined. Yes, we'd had grief before through the loss of parents. We'd never had grief like that before. Uh, my daughter's had um, a bout of cancer and she said, that having cancer was not as bad as losing Jonathan. For grief, grief and the body, grief brings physical pain. Uh, your heart is pierced by grief. It can bring uncontrolled weeping. You just can't help. Even now I'm choked up uncontrolled weeping, difficulty speaking. Your senses are bereaved. Your, your smell, your taste, your, your, your touch are bereaved. The great English poet Tennyson, thinking of the loss that he had suffered, said, Oh, for the touch of a vanished hand, the sound of a voice that is still. Grief. Or your mind is affected by grief. Uh, you imagine 
what would he be like now? What would she be doing now? Memory. Uh, you know that person so very well. You, there's nothing you would ever forget about that person, but then as the years passed, uh, there's a gradual fragmentation of memory. So no longer continuous. Am I thinking right? Do I remember correctly? That, was that what we did then? And your memory begins to fragment. You can no longer exactly recreate the person in your memory. There is a sort of well-attested absent presence. Uh, sometimes merely a habit. Uh, sometimes a smell, sense of smell. Um, you pick up a garment worn by the person. My sister-in-law picked up her, uh, her husband's cap to put it on one day when she was going out into the sun. And there was Ralph, the smell of him, on the cap. She knew it at once. The absent presence, sometimes merely habit, sometimes a sense of a presence. People often testify that they feel that the lost one is in the next room or nearby. It happened, the testimony occurs too often for it to be merely nothing, and that may last for some time. Sometimes a dream, you dream of the person. Uh, Wordsworth, another great English poet, wrote love of his daughter. He's lost his daughter when she was 12. Um, he said, love, faithful love, recalled thee to my mind. But how could I forget thee? Suddenly he remembered her, but how could he possibly have forgotten her? Grief in the body, grief in the mind, grief and the heart. For grief is a wounded love, even a broken or a torn love. That's why we can experience grief and it may not be over a death. It may be over a broken relationship, grief. Uh, but there is in death the abiding loss, the abiding loss of ultimate separation. I remember a friend of ours lost her husband absolutely suddenly um, two or three years ago. Uh, they were both in their 50s. She called out to him. He didn't come down for uh, the meal. And she went up. He was dead. To this day, they don't quite know why. And then to see her and to stand with her and to recognize she was now having to make decisions alone, which they always did together. Big decisions, big decisions about him. What funeral now? What are we going to do with his possessions now? Decisions that were taken jointly are now taken by the survivor alone. Every decision is cutting is cutting that one off. There's a new life being formed without that person that never was imagined. Wordsworth also, surprised by joy, he's, he sees something absolutely wonderful, and he said, surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I turn to share the rapture, oh, with whom? But with thee, long buried in the silent tomb. Yes. Yes. Grief and the heart, grief and the other. Other people and my grief. The funny thing is how personal grief is. You've been to funerals, I'm sure, um, and you uh, are sad and sorry and the funeral takes place and so forth and so on. And then 
Everyone gathers for the uh, afternoon tea afterwards and it's not long before there's a buzz of conversation and then laughter breaks out and then there's people smiling and so forth and so on and you're the widow standing there looking on as your grief is forgotten within 10 minutes. The grief with which you are going to live for the next, for as long as your life goes on. Other people forget so easily. Or worse, I think, you go to church and people treat you differently. They used to treat you as husband and wife. They now treat you just as a single person is different. They treat you differently. Friends of ours lost a child um, in an accident. And they met friends, it was a smallish suburb, and they met friends in the street coming towards them from the church. And people would cross the road in order to avoid having to say anything to such grief. We avoid grief. We don't want to be in the same room as grief. And so we isolate grief and we render it lonely. Or conscience. As you look back, you regret words. Words that you didn't get around to speaking. Or worse, words that were spoken and not retracted. Wrongs, not righted. How do you cope with grief? I'm sorry if this has raised for many of you memories and grief, but sometimes we've got to talk about these things. And not least in our Christian circles, for if you're not a believer, I'll never forget Christian and I are sitting on the bed one night. Uh, one of our children was out, uh, disappeared out of the house in the middle of the night, didn't know where he was, didn't know what he was doing. He could be in any danger, he could be anywhere. And as we sat on the edge of our bed at three o'clock in the morning, we prayed. And then uh, one of us said to the other, what do unbelievers do at this time? What does an unbeliever do? For we knew as we prayed that we didn't know where he was, but the Lord God, our Heavenly Father, did know where he was. His eye was on that sparrow. And indeed, in that case, he brought him home. Or do you treat grief as an unbeliever? How do you treat it? Well, stoic, stone-faced, stone-heart, holding yourself in in order not to feel because you don't want to feel. So you're going to be a stoic. Is it going to be too hard to deal with? So you stand granite against grief. Is that what it is? Or do you go the other way? Is, is grief filled with emotion? Do you let your emotions rule you so that grief just fills you with emotion and often a sort of a, an emotion-fueled optimism? Oh, they've just gone to the next room. Or, you know, I keep thinking of the person. I, I keep meeting the person. I keep, there's a sort of a romantic sort of optimism. Or what about a denial? I, I'm not hurting. I'm all right. I'm not hurting. And yet unseen, all unseen, grief. What the New Testament says is not we as Christians don't grieve. We know they're in heaven, we don't grieve. No, the New Testament doesn't say that at all. What it says, 1 Thessalonians, is we grieve, but not as those without hope. We grieve, but not as those without hope. Our grief has written right inside it a hope 
which sustains. And what is that hope? Well, it's the hope of heaven. It's the hope that the loved one is with the Lord. And even as we pass ourselves, we fall sick with our final illness, and we know it is our final illness, we grieve, we grieve who we're going to leave behind. We grieve our loss. We grieve the loss of relationships. When people are dying, a palliative care chaplain said to me, when people are dying, they don't talk about their jobs. They could be the CEO of, you know, BHP, but they don't talk about it. They talk about their relationships, their family, often with deep regret. And so there is a grief in dying as well. I'm going to go and leave you. Well, then, what is heaven like? Let's think about this. What is heaven like? We don't know. The Bible says we don't know. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. So as you look through that wonderful, what shall we say, uh, telescope, to use an image, I don't know where I got it from, uh, as we look down through this telescope, what do we see? We, we don't know. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. What is heaven like? Well, furthermore, and uh, particularly in the light of that, uh, why would you want to go to heaven? Frankly, last night uh, someone mentioned the uh, way in which unbelievers often say, oh, I'd rather go to hell. Uh, hell is where the bad guys are, that's me mates, and I'd rather be there drinking with them in the pub than going to heaven and where the spirits go around playing harps. Now, I personally am very fond of harpists, but I'm not fond of harps, uh, if I can draw that distinction. Uh, uh, and I sort of agree. Heaven, in the popular mind, is, is ethereal, it's angelic, it's cloudy, it's sort of vague, it's sort of spiritual, and yet you have the harpists. Uh, what? Wouldn't you rather be in a pub? I mean, what on earth is this about? Why would you want to go to heaven? Well, if you turn to the scriptures, although, well, let me say this. In the scriptures, at least, here's one explanation of the scriptures, that, that heaven is a great city. Now, I love that because heaven, uh, in the scriptures begin with human beings in a garden and end up with us in a city. And I'd much prefer to live in a city than have a garden, let me tell you. So I think this is great. But is it a great city in which we see endless music worshipping by spirits? Is it, is it that we are going to be in an endless, unforgettable sort of concert? Are the church musicians going to take over? Is that what heaven is? You know, I can take the Alleluia Chorus, but only once a year. Um, <laughs> Is this what heaven is? Or as one theologian said, in heaven, uh, of course, the angels play Bach. And if they have half an hour off, they go and play Mozart. But is heaven going to be an endless classical music concert? 
Is that what we're expecting? And then, more seriously, are they in heaven? Is there any chance, even though I knew nothing of their... They, they gave no indication. Is there any chance that they may be in heaven waiting for me? And so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, and, and indeed the whole passage uh, that we read, and other passages too, what can tell us? Well, what we've seen so far is that uh, before the Lord comes again, before the Lord comes again, until he comes again, then people die. So uh, he hasn't come yet, so the chances are that we may die, and death is a likely reality for many of us, depending on when the Lord comes. What, we can ask ourselves, happens when you die? You go to heaven? Uh, are you resurrected? What, what, what's going on? Now, the Apostle Paul speaks about that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he talks about uh, our body as being a tent. Uh, he says, we know the earthly tent we live in, our bodies, uh, is, it's an impermanent thing, a tent, uh, is destroyed. We have a building made from, uh, from God, an eternal house in the heaven, not built by human hands. I, I presume he's talking here about the resurrection body. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead of in our heavenly, clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Our earthly dwelling, our tents are pretty vulnerable. We wish to be in the permanent resurrection body that we've been clothed. We won't be found because we, will, we do not wish to be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we don't wish to be unclothed, but clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. And I think the image here is, yes, we wish to have the resurrection body. That's what we're longing for. Uh, but is that what happens automatically? When you die, are you instantly resurrected? Well, there's a debate about this. Some would say, yes, that, that that does happen at once, that time is different in the heavenly places and you are resurrected at once. I myself don't think that fits the evidence very well, that rather when you die, you go to be with the Lord, if you like, spiritually. Um, like the dying thief on the cross, when Jesus said, he, to, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise, and yet the resurrection didn't occur for three days after that. So in some sense, the humanity of the person, the reality of the person, continued on in a spiritual sense, as I take it that Jesus did. Jesus dies on the Friday, but he's not resurrected till the Sunday. So I take it that there's a, a, a way in which we continue to exist, not yet fulfilled completely, not yet resurrected from the dead, but spiritually, I take it that we go on and uh, waiting for the resurrection. Uh, is it a, a bad state? Well, some people think it's asleep, uh, because sometimes the believers who have died are referred to as being asleep. But really the concept there is not so much they're asleep and can't think, but that rather from our point of view, uh, we don't think of them as dead and gone. We think of them as if they were asleep. We know that one day they will wake up, we will wake up, we'll be together again, so to speak. But it doesn't. it's really our way of looking at it from here. Yes, they're asleep, they're, they're, they're here, but we still know they're alive. Uh, from their point of view, they're not snoozing. Uh, their life is uh, real, it's going on. Today you will be with me in paradise, said the Lord. I think that's the best way of reading those sort of concepts in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, for example. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, likewise, we hear that the dead in Christ will rise first. When Christ comes again, the dead in Christ will rise first. So I think what we're dealing with are three stages. Death, yes, and then a stage between, and then resurrection, and then judgment. Those three stages, death, st well, four if you like, death, a stage between, 
then resurrection and judgment. I think that's the best way of reading all the evidence. Will all be resurrected? Yes, Jesus said that all human beings, John 5, 28 and 29, all human beings will be resurrected. And then all will come to the judgment seat. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, if you've still got that open, uh, just to confirm that, we must all appear before the judgment. He's writing to Christians, and he says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due for us in the body, whether good or bad. Okay, so that's sort of addressing some of the, the timeline, but what's heaven like? <laughs> We're resurrected. We've passed through judgment. What is heaven like? Well, what the, what the New Testament gives us, and I, I've been wondering about this a lot recently. Don't ask me why. Um, it's just a thought that's come to me. Uh, what, I've never really thought about it before. It's just one of those things. Uh, what's, what's heaven like? So what I've been doing, I've read again the New Testament. Now, this time I've been looking out for any hints, any sort of word here, a word there, which gives us an idea of what, because we don't know, it tells us, but yet he gives us ideas. He moves us from what we know, things that we do know, into things we don't know. He moves us from what we know to what we don't know. And this is how he does it. So here are some of the biblical pictures of heaven. Ready? Some of the biblical pictures of what it is like to live on in eternal life after judgment. All that's done with. You're resurrected from the dead. Now what's heaven like? Okay, some biblical pictures. Well, a new heavens and a new earth. 2 Peter 3, for example. In which dwells righteousness. There's a physicality about the future, if you like. Not sure if that's the right word for it, but it's not an ethereal picture that we're getting here. There's an embodiment to the future. It's the real us. We are creatures. We are creatures made of something, and that embodiment continues on into the future, into the new heavens and the new earth. Two Corinthians, uh, two Peter, chapter three. Uh, it's referred to in the book of Revelation and elsewhere as the wedding of the Lamb. It's like a wedding feast where you're not paying it for it. <laughs> I speak as a father. Um, the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride, the church. Uh, the word paradise has been used. It turns up in 2 Corinthians 12 as well. Paul talks about going to paradise out of the body. He speaks of going to the paradise out of the body. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 1. Uh, you receive your inheritance. Uh, the moment comes when you are blessed with an inheritance. Uh, and you receive your inheritance, uh, Galatians 3, verse 15. Uh, we are told that uh, our life is filled with treasure. Uh, um, don't gather treasure on earth, but gather treasure in heaven, says Jesus, Matthew 6.20. Matthew 6.20. Um, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and the promises of the Beatitudes, that too, you know, they, those who mourn will be comforted, and the meek will inherit the earth you begin to get some telescope picture there of what the future is likely to be. Each of them is immensely positive and uh, certainly not the ethereal sort of, oh, trill, 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 uh, that sometimes people think. And no wonder people talk about, I'd rather go to hell than suffer that. Uh, uh, there are rewards. Uh, the Apostle Paul says uh, he will receive the crown of life, as will all who love his appearing. If you're looking for the coming again of Jesus then you are due to receive a crown, the crown of life, says Paul. Uh, that's in um, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Uh, Matthew 5:12 speaks about the reward, the reward that you will receive. This is uh, not a reward in the sense of 
salvation by reward, but there is a sense in which having passed through the judgment, which is due to Christians, you will receive a reward. Uh, and more of that in just a moment. Uh, bad luck. If you find church difficult sometimes, heaven is church. The church will be there, of course, the bride of Christ. He is the lamb. It's the wedding feast of the lamb. It is church. But church in the best sense. Church with, without any more quarrels in the kitchen about who should use which cups and saucers and things like that. No more fights, but church as it is intended to be. Church as sometimes it is, even in this life. Church, in other words, the heaven is intended to be completely relational. We are relational beings. Too many pictures of heaven think of us as individuals. Heaven is going to be me and God. No, it's going to be us. It's, going to, it's relational. But there's no marriage in heaven. Well, uh, that's Jesus said, no marriage in heaven, Matthew twenty-two thirty. 30. Uh, that's not quite right, is it? There is marriage in heaven. It's, it's called the marriage of the Lamb and the church. And I suspect that what we're seeing there, and if that it disappoints you, as it disappoints me, of course, I say, in the presence of Mrs. Jensen, uh, but uh, your, that marriage, which is actually a picture of the future, every marriage, Ephesians 5, uh, is really, uh, the great thing about marriage is that it's a picture of Christ and his church. And therefore, your marriage won't be, you know, you won't look back with regret. You'll be experiencing so much more of relationship it'll transcend what you now have I can't say a better than that I, I that's as good as I can do but I don't think for a moment you will think oh I've, it's terrible I have lost her I've lost him you won't have lost them you will be with them in fellowship of God's people immortality is another word you will your, your eternal life will go on forever it'll never be touched Thank goodness. You're safe. You're safe. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2 tells us that in heaven we will be judging, judging the angels and carrying out a, a, a judging activity under Christ, of course. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, in, now we see in, in part and darkly that then we will see face to face. Now exist faith, hope and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Heaven is the triumph and fulfillment of love. What you were made for. And knowledge, because you will know him. Uh, you will know him as you have been known. Oh boy, won't that be great. <laughs> if you've been faithful over little, you will be, you will be given much. A stewardship. It will be Zion, the city of God. Revelation 21, 22. Zion, the city of God, the great city in all its perfection, and there will be no temple there, for God will be there. So no need for a temple. The reality of, to which the temple points will be there, and there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more weeping, no more mourning, and even the sea will not be there, which is a symbol of saying this. They didn't like the sea much. In the, in amongst, anyhow, we won't go there, but nonetheless, the bad things will have gone. It is only the good things that will remain. And you say to me, that'll be boring. Now, you don't understand goodness. That's your trouble. You think goodness is boring. You think only badness is fun. That's why you watch endless television programs about badness. But that's not true. The actually, it is goodness which is 
exciting, interesting, marvellous, wonderful, mind-shattering. You have no idea of how good goodness can be because we're fascinated out of our evil hearts by badness. It won't be like that. It'll be far, far. We will be conquerors. Uh, some of the language of heaven, eternal life, glory. It will be glory, glory, glory. It'll be honor, peace for you, honor and peace for you. You'll be given all things, we're told, and it'll be rest. What a relief, particularly if you're a parent of three children. You'll have rest, but it doesn't mean rest in the sense of sleepy sleepiness. It means re the rest of the Sabbath where God works still, but it was, the, it was the, effortless, the effortless rest that works. That's what we're being promised here, the rest, Hebrews 3 and 4. So, okay, that's a vast panorama. Now, how can you sum it up? What, what, how can you now sum it up and focus it for us? Because there's just too many things there, and I'm sure I've left out half the things that you could say. And I'm going to sum it up by those words that you'll see there, glory, relationship purpose ready here we go get on board the train ready to go if there's time probably won't be but if there is time i'm going to ask you any questions okay so glory first of all strange word glory go have two corinthians four and five open please uh a strange word glory it really means shining uh the sun is glorious you can't look at it it's so full of shining. It shines. But glory also has a sense of weight like gold. It's the, it's the, it's the gold that shines. Uh, that's, that's, that's the best way we can think about it. Now look at 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. We do not lose heart. Outwardly, we are wasting away. You betcha. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. True. By the power of the Holy Spirit. For our light and momentary troubles, compared to what is ahead, are achieving for us, achieving for us, achieving for us. Do you see what's there? An eternal weight. Do you hear that? Gold. An eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. It is not only that you are going to see glory, you are, but you are going to be glorious. You are being transformed even as we speak from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 20. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another by the Holy Spirit. You are being made glorious. You are being prepared for glory. You will be glorious. C.S. Lewis once said, if you could see yourself now as you will be then, you would bow down and worship. You will be glorious. We're not talking here about, you know, what the 20-year-olds worried about, whether their body shape is all right or not. That's just ridiculous. Your glory will be of such that you won't even be conscious of it. You'll be, you, your glory will be such that your, that your whole heart will be given over to God, to Christ, to his church, to others. For you are going to be, and this is the most wonderful part of being glorious, you are going to be what you are definitely not now, well, maybe you're moving in that direction. You're going to be like Christ. You are going to be in his image. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 18, Romans 8, you are going to be like Christ. And as you are like 
the greatest person that ever lived, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So you will be observing, you will be glorious, but you will be in the presence of glory. Now you say to me, okay, well, I can only put up with some glory. You know, time moves on, I'd rather see something else. Um, No. Look, it's going to be like that moment, which you may not even remember, and which certainly didn't affect you the same way. But let me tell you, when Sydney had the Olympic Games, Sydney was a different city. You have no idea. The city was changed. People were nice to each other. You have no idea. It was as if the Spirit of God had come amongst us in a way, and then you could go to this auditorium, 100,000 people, and there, there was our hero. There was our hero. In the 400, was it the 400 metres? Who was it? Kathy Freeman. And Kathy was doing the... And there's 100,000 Australians in the arena watching her and she comes around and she wins gold and we stood as... I wasn't there, but anyhow, we all stood as one person and shouted. Now just think, it just so transcends anything. You're not thinking of yourself at that moment. And you couldn't do it on your own. It needed 100,000 people. That's glory. Infinitely extended into excitement and newness and freshness. And because you're like Jesus, you will enjoy the glory. You could possibly be bored by it, let alone anything else. This is glory. How extraordinary. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. Okay, furthermore, it's relationship. You are, you are like Christ. Furthermore, I love this. You have a look. 2 Corinthians, see if I'm right here. 2 Corinthians 5, have a look, um, and verse 8. As we are confident, no, as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Yes, that's us. For we live by faith, not by sight. Yes. We are confident, I say, we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You know, when you go home, it's, it's a wonder if you've been away, you go home. And home, not just because, you know, your favorite train set is there or something like this. Uh, I still got my train set from a child. But, and your books are there and your fire is there. But because she is there, because he is there, because they are there, you go home. And the great thing about heaven, I don't know what heaven's like. I've only got the smallest intimation of what heaven is like, but I know who heaven is like. I know who's going to be there. And he's the person I want to spend eternity with. I'm going to be like him. I'll not even be able to sin anymore. Oh, thank God. I'll never lie. I'll never fail him anymore. I will be without sin. My sins will be blotted out and I'll be not able to sin. I'll be like him and I'm going to be with him and he's going to be with me and with us because it's not just me. Of course, it's all of us. And that's what the Bible calls, and I hadn't mentioned this one purposely, going home. Because although you feel at home here now, no, you're not at home. You're living in a tent. You're out in a a tenting expedition somewhere. Going home is going home. And that's what we're looking forward to. Getting home after being out trekking. We'll be with the church. 
There'll be the marriage of Jesus and his church. In other words, we will all be together in Christ. We will be like him and we will be with him. And will it just be an endless, 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 beautiful and somewhat boring perfection? Because perfection can be a bit boring, can't it? No. Have a look. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look. Verse 9. Let's all say verse 9 together. Ready? So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. In other words, in, at home you will be alive, active, purposive. Your life will still be purposive. There will be things to do. Some of us will have more gifts than others depending on what we've done here on earth. There will be gradations, I think, in heaven. I'll be there and I'll be looking way down here and seeing people that I despised here on earth and thought they weren't worth much and I finally discover that they were the ones that God was... Uh, they were there and I'll be glad for them because I'm sinless, you see. And we will be working for the Lord. We will be ruling the universe, the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be doing the job Adam and Eve were supposed to do but we'll be far transcending that job. There'll be purpose in what you do. There'll be meaning and significance in what you do. You'll judge angels. So it's not just sitting there. It's not just playing endless music. It's, it's I, well, I can't, how could I describe it? I'm trying to do the impossible. It will be glorious. It'll be relational because that's what we're built for. And it'll be purposive. Will he be there? Go back to your grief. For some of us, that's all very well, but the one we loved has never professed faith. We prayed, we prayed and prayed for him. We prayed for her, but we know nothing of whether they've ever come to know the Lord or not. Is it possible that they could be there? We know nothing. My mother, Christine's parents, we don't know. But could God, is it possible that they could be there? And let me say to you, um, as I said on Friday night, I once met a man half who became a Christian half a second before he died. You may say to me, how did I meet that person? I'll explain. Okay, he was a businessman, uh, and uh, he was out during the day, came back, and there on his desk, desk calendar, everyone had gone, desk calendar, little quotation on the desk calendar, it said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And some idiot in the office, there's always one, put a circle around it and said, the Lord called you today, ring him back. Big joke. If he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have noticed it. He went home in his car, and in those days, if you banged into someone from the back, almost certainly the steering wheel rents, you'd be a dead person. On the Harbour Bridge, Sydney Harbour Bridge, he went straight into the back of someone, and he knew he was a dead man. And in that split second, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, came straight into his head. He called upon the name of the Lord. He survived. He woke up a Christian. Now, if he died, how could you ever recreate all that? You couldn't, could you? You would you'd assume he died without being Christian. Someone was praying for that man, and the Lord brought him to himself. Now, we've run out of time, but I don't care because I want to tell the story that Sian told me. Where are you, Sian? I can't see you. Thank you. Do you mind? It's a very, very wonderful story, and I'll just keep it fairly brief. 
And Sian said something marvelous to me. <laughs> she said, I believe in predestination because of this. <laughs> and so do I, because it's the only way we'll ever get home, because it's only by God calling us home that we make it home. Why is Sian a Christian? Because her mother was. How come her mother was? She grew up in Indonesia. Uh, she came from a, um, a traditional Chinese religious background. She's sitting there one day in her home, I think, sewing. I hope I haven't got the story wrong. Sewing. And the walls are quite thin in the dwelling places of this little village. And the, a Dutch evangelist comes in and talks to the woman in the house next door and shares the gospel with the woman in the house next door. And through that flimsy wall, Sian's mother hears the gospel. The woman rejects the gospel and never becomes a Christian as far as we know. Sian's mother, who is invisible to the Dutch evangelist, and the Dutch evangelist never heard this story, started to think about Jesus. Was wondering about this Jesus. And then one day, some years later, I think, she met in the marketplace. <laughs> she met a Christian who was bubbling. And Sian's mother, who was wondering who Jesus was, found out who Jesus was and believed in Jesus. As a result, all her children believed in Jesus. Her grandchildren believed in Jesus. Sian believes in Jesus. Her husband, I think, believed in Jesus. The whole family believed in Jesus. There's generations of people who believe in Jesus. But the Dutch evangelist could never have ever known that that happened. And you say to me, do you think my husband may be saved? Do I think my mother might have been saved? Well, you pray. God's a great God. God can reach out and call a person home, even at the last moment. And so we grieve, but we do not grieve as those without hope. We have our hope. Our hope is a real hope. Our hope is a person. That person is the good shepherd. That person, we see him. We look at the invisible, and that is Christ, the good shepherd. We understand that death is filled with horror. We understand that after death comes judgment. But we know that death has been defeated and trampled underfoot by, the, by, our, by our great Saviour. Thus we grieve, but not as those without hope. And we walk with him. We walk with the Good Shepherd. That is the Christian life. We seek to please him every day. For that is the Christian life. That's our business. And as we approach death, and we may or may not know we are approaching, could happen suddenly, but as we approach death, we continue to walk with the Good Shepherd. And every day we walk with him by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're becoming more and more like him, until one day we go to be with him and we will be utterly like him. And as we walk into the valley of the shadow of death, we walk with the Good Shepherd. And he will not leave us or forsake us, we know we walk with him. And then, one day, we will meet him face to face. And we continue to live as we have lived in this life, making it our aim to please him. There is the good shepherd. What a hope. What a difference. How different that is from anything the secular world has to offer. 
how much we have an obligation to share that gospel, to make the Good Shepherd known, so that others too may come to know him and have that hope, which makes all life meaningful. How much we can trust him. And if Sian can sit here today as a Christian, as a result of a Dutch evangelist who didn't even know what he was doing, then God is able to do anything to bring his people home. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great hope that is in Jesus. We thank you that he is our hope. We pray, our gracious God, that you'd help us day to day by the power of your wonderful Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus until we are in his image. And help us, Heavenly Father, to be conscious that we are with Jesus, or rather he is with us. And we look forward to the day when we will see him face to face. And as in this life, so in that life, strive to please him in all things to the glory of his great name. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.